2: All right. Well, we are sitting down with Lelania Lloyd, um, uh, who is a rare disease patient and advocate and educator uh, living over on the beautiful West Coast of Canada, which we are soon to be visiting uh, in the in the coming months. We're very excited for. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about the work that you do uh, for two reasons. Uh, Number one, you were you were you were. Brought to our attention by our, our good friend and past uh, past podcast guest Sue, who uh, I mean we we are huge fans of Sue and everything that she's doing for patient advocacy and um, speaking up for patients' rights. Um, but also uh, reading your bio, I'm like, holy smokes! You know, it's it's funny. We usually have when we have someone come on the show for these Wednesday episodes that we're usually speaking to doctors or um, you know people with PhDs, um, which you. You technically aren't one of those, but it feels like maybe you <laughs> should be. Um, uh, so, uh, Lelaine, I'll hand the mic over to you. Why don't, why don't you uh, give, give a little bit of an introduction uh, to yourself, to our listeners? Let us know uh, who you are, um, what, what rare disease you're living with, and uh, why, why am I sitting here uh, basically praising your smartness, um, even though you don't have a, a PhD uh, to your, tagged to your name?
1: So um, I'm a rare disease patient living with a disease called neuromyelitis optica which um, is a disease where your immune system attacks your optic nerve and your spinal cord.
2: Mm. um,
1: And it can cause blindness, paralysis. Um, In some cases, if it gets the wrong part of your spinal cord, it can actually kill you because it will affect the part that controls breathing. Um, I've lived with this disease since I was 12 years old, um, but I wasn't diagnosed until um, my early 40s it took me 30 years to get a diagnosis um, partially because it was rare and partially because um, people weren't listening to me in the medical community when I was saying you know I have some issues and and um, you know was being patted on the head an awful lot and um, I actually uh, saved my own life I would say Um, and so I became um, an accidental advocate for this rare disease when I realized um, how little knowledge there was and how little awareness there was um, just through my own experience, but also in talking with others with my rare disease. And um, just felt that it was really important um, to put a face to that and a voice to it um, within the medical community as much as I could um, to kind of in the hopes of saving other uh, patients, you know, my protracted journey to diagnosis. So um, mm. that's sort of the Cliff Notes versions of, of how I got here.
2: <laughs> now, I, I know that, uh, you know, we've, we've spoken to a number of people in the past um, with a variety of different autoimmune disorders. And um, one of the things that, like, I've gathered from autoimmune diseases is that they're, they're, they can be um, quite tricky. To diagnose for a lot of people, um, can you can you talk to us a little bit about the process of of getting to your diagnosis? And I know that within that story somewhere there's uh, there's a, a little bit of a misdiagnosis that you went through uh, a number of years ago.
1: Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, my first symptoms were when I was twelve. Um, I'd be walking down a flight of stairs and it was like my brain would um, just for a few split seconds shut off communication between my brain and my legs and I'd lose track of where my body was in space and I would fall down the stairs because you know we go up and down stairs without really thinking about it there's a Mm. rhythm to it and when there's an interruption to that signal to your legs you really um, I always think of it in my mind as when you see Wiley Coyote in the cartoons, the Bugs Bunny cartoons, where he goes off the cliff and his legs are kind of windmilling in the air before he falls, that's what it feels like. Um, And it's a really odd experience to not understand where your body is. And so I had quite a few accidents falling down flights of stairs. I also, um, I grew up in Winnipeg and I would cycle to school. And um, sometimes when I was cycling, that same thing would happen. And my feet would fly off the pedals and I'd lose complete control over the bike and I would crash and injure myself. Um, because again, bike riding is something that you need proprioception for. You need to understand where your body is in order to keep balance. And so, you know, I had a few of these accidents and they put it down to, um, you know, bad mechanics in my knees. And Mm -hmm. I did some physiotherapy and of course, nothing, nothing, um, Seem to help and I also as I as I got older I had um, episodes of severe vomiting for no reason and that's one of the hallmarks of NMO is that you can have um, these these sudden episodes of extreme vomiting um, and another one which seems really benign but is hiccups that won't go away and it has to do with Mm. where the damage is happening at the base of your spinal cord where you're Uh, in the back of your head where your spinal cord is right up at the top. Um, If you get a lesion in that area, some damage, um, that's what happens. And so I had episodes of vomiting. um, I had extreme fatigue. And then um, in my early 20s, I had situations where I would not be able to feel my legs, and I'd be walking around on legs I couldn't feel for three or four months at a time. And so, oh. you know, I went repetitively to um, my family doctor and said, you know, like I'm walking around on legs I can't feel. And I, I had at that time I had just had my son, and um, she said to me, oh, well, you know, you lose ten pounds, you'll feel better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just a pinch mm-hmm. nerve, and I was like, yeah, I don't think so but of course nobody was listening to me and you know my my symptoms got worse and worse and eventually I had an accident where I fell down a flight of stairs and I hit my lower back um, and within a few hours I couldn't feel from my waist down and I went in and my doctor was away and there was a locum on, and he did an x-ray and nothing showed up and a few more days went by and eventually I couldn't feel from my ribs down And I went back and I had another x-ray and they still couldn't see anything. So a few more days went by and now it had moved up the numbness to my collarbone and I was starting to have trouble breathing. Mm -hmm. And I went back a third time and my doctor was back and she said, well, you know, if you hit your back and it was a back injury, it would be from the point of impact down. It wouldn't be moving up. Um, so she sent me off to see a neurologist. And, uh, you know, I did a bunch of touch your finger, touch your nose, a bunch of the neuro- neurology tests that they do. And finally, he said to me, What do you think is wrong? And I said, Well, you know, my best friend is a massage therapist and she thinks that I have MS. And he said, I think she's right.
2: Hmm. Wow. Um, and
1: this is a really common thing with, with neuromyelitis optica or, or NMO for short. Um, a lot of people are misdiagnosed as MS. And the problem with that is that if you have MS or you have NMO and you're put on MS drugs, it actually can make you much worse. Wow. And so I went through a good five years of um, cycling through a whole pile of MS drugs and getting worse and having to go all the way to chemotherapy. Um, And I was really circling the drain. I was in one massive attack that just never went away. And um, I, when I was initially being diagnosed, um, the neurologist that diagnosed me wanted to test me for neuromyelitis optica. There was a test a blood test, and it was only two years old at the time and not available in Canada. And uh, she sent my blood off to the Mayo Clinic in the United States, and it came back negative. What they didn't know was that because the test was so new, it had about a 40% false negative rate, and I fell into that. Oh, wow. no. It was like this giant gaping hole that I fell into, through nobody's fault. They just mm-hmm. didn't know that it had such a high rate of false negative, negative. Um, and so that was why I was treated as if I had MS. Mm-hmm. And what an
0: what, what an emotional roller coaster, though. Like even yeah. even just that part, and and I can imagine. I mean, even leading up to getting that that uh, misdiagnosis as as MS, I imagine that your healthcare journey. At that point in your life was was very like, did it lead you to doubt your your own self and how you thought you were even thinking about the experiences that you're having? Like just to go like back to the falling down the stairs yeah. part. Like, you know, you fall down the stairs, they tell you it's the mechanics in your knee, it's it's not really that. But then you start to like go, well, maybe I'm just clumsy, or maybe it's this or maybe it's that. Like, did you start? Did you feel like they were like almost sort of gaslighting you, like telling you what you were? Experiencing wasn't really, well, happening. you know, at
1: 12, I don't know if you know what gaslighting is. At that point, I thought, oh, they must know something I don't. And if I only work hard enough at physiotherapy, it will get better. Um, by the time I was 15, I was having a lot of numbness in my right arm and hand, and I'd have pain radiating from my <clears throat> collarbone down, and it got so bad. I couldn't even stand to have my arm hanging down at its side. And I I walked around for months with my arm in a sling to take the pressure off because it was so painful. Um, And I actually had a bone scan because they were looking for bone cancer. That's what they thought was wrong with me. So, you know, you have to think about the fact that my symptoms started at 12 and I went through a lot of attacks between 12 and Thirty, which was when, you know, I was misdiagnosed with MS. I, w- I th- it was 30, 37. No, yeah, thirty-six, when I was misdiagnosed. And so, you know, I was a kid for a big chunk of that, um, you know. And you don't have a lot of power as a child with health issues, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. You're relying on your parents or and your medical team to mm-hmm. figure it out. And but you know they kept doing all these tests. And not finding what they expected to find, mm-hmm. and then you know they would with, sort of let it go with and, that with that um, you know... with that
0: with that mis misdiagnosis of of MS and like going on to those drugs and and them telling like the doctor saying yeah I think you have MS too even your your friend who is a massage therapist saying like this looks like MS but then you start taking those drugs and they're not making you feel better. In fact, they're making you feel worse. Did you, did you feel like, did you believe in your heart at that time that it was MS too? Or were you feeling like, you know, maybe this is still something else?
1: No, because as soon as I was diagnosed with MS, I got connected with the MS society. And at that time, well, they still do. But, um, when I first joined, they had a bunch of, um, like patient education uh, workshops that they were putting on. And I went because I didn't know anybody with MS. And the more that I got connected into that community and the more people's stories I heard, um, you know, where they were talking about, oh, well, I have lesions on my spinal cord, but I have lots of lesions in my brain. And I thought, huh, I don't have any lesions in my brain but my spinal cord is a hot mess. Like I had great big long swaths of my spinal cord that were damaged. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was what kind of made me question everything because that, and the fact that no matter how much treatment I did, I could not get into remission. And so I was like, there's something wrong here because there's nobody whose story is like mine. Like how is this possible and how are all these people on these treatments and getting into remission and having periods of relative wellness within their diagnosis. And I'm not getting that. Like mm. that was the part that really kind of twigged for me that something wasn't quite right. Mm. Um, you is know, that
0: the, and- Is that the seed that was like, you, you mentioned you saved, you like the part of the advocacy work you did for yourself that saved your own life. Was that like the seed, sowing the seed of like, questioning things to the point because that sounds like it could be very dangerous right like like being treated for something that you don't have not getting better because
1: what what the truth is about NMO is that left untreated it can be fatal so you know and I was just getting worse and worse and my team was basically throwing up their hands they didn't know what to do for me and you know, I had I had cycled through all the MS drugs, um, you know, and I had gone on to chemotherapy. I had four treatments of a a really heavy duty chemotherapy that they use for immunosuppression um, in MS. And it's it's a chemotherapy that is used for men for prostate cancer, believe it or not. Um, and it's heart toxic. So you have a lifetime cap of 12 treatments. And I had four and nothing changed Mm. and that's when they were like okay well we're not going to make you do any more because this is not helping you like you're not getting any better and that for me was like terrifying because you know they're throwing the best thing they have at this and it's not it's not making a dent at all Mm. so you know and at, at that point we were like in 2012 I was uh, forty-one years old, and um, I, I I had well in in late twenty eleven to early twenty twelve, I had a bunch of eye pain and my vision was really off, and um, I finally phoned my ophthalmologist and I said, hey, I need to see you. my vision is really blurry, and she's like, well, I just saw you six months ago, and I was like, well, there's something wrong. And so I went in and she looked at my eyes and she said to me, "Um, have you ever been tested for diabetes? And I said, yeah, I have that periodically because we have a type two in my family. And, you know, just for safety's sake, you know, occasionally I get screened for that, but it's never been positive. Um, And she said, well, I think you have diabetes. So she said, I'm going to write you a a, a lab requisition, go get tested. And I'm also going to give you a prescription, but if if you test positive for diabetes, then you have to wait till your blood sugar stabilizes before you fill this. And so I went and had the test, but I was pretty sure that it wasn't diabetes because I didn't have any other symptoms that would be consistent with diabetes. And so, you know, I was I was like, okay, had the test, it came back negative. Um, and then a few months after that. I got on a bus one day to ride five minutes to my local library and I was fine. When I got on five minute ride, I lost my vision. When Um, I got on, I was fine. When I got off, I couldn't see. And so I had a meeting I was going to. So I went to the meeting and I sat there quietly freaking out. Nobody had any clue. (laughs) And when I was done, I called my husband and I said, honey, I need you to come and pick me up. And he's like, well, you know, hun, the the bus stop is right there. And it's only five minutes home. And I said, no, you don't understand. I can't see. And he's like, what do you mean you can't see? And I said, I've lost my vision. There's something really wrong. So he came and got me because he could tell by my voice that I was quietly panicking. (laughs) I'm not somebody to go into full panic mode. Like, that's just not how I am. I was a crisis line worker for eight years. So You know, I can handle a lot before (laughs) I get upset. So, yeah. How like how much how
2: much vision did you lose? Like, were you were you able to see like anything? Was it like pitch black, or or was like everything
1: somebody had taken Vaseline and smeared it over both my eyes? Wow. So you know, I could make out shapes and stuff, but I wasn't seeing clearly. And so, when I saw my neurologist and I had a conversation with her, because this has been going on at this point, it was now July. And um, this problem had been going on since September of the previous year. And when I explained to her, like all the episodes I had, she's like, she ran down the hall and got the neuro ophthalmologist, um, who's a neurologist and an ophthalmologist. They train in both disciplines. And He took me into his room and did a whole bunch of um, looking at my eyes. And he said to me, have you ever been tested for NMO? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, like when I was first being diagnosed. And he said, what what did you test? And I said, negative. And he said, well, you've had optic neuritis. And I'm 100% sure that you're going to get a positive test now. So they ordered another test. And while I was waiting for that, the MS Society um, had sent out a newsletter and said that there was going to be a patient information day at UBC for NMO. And I thought to myself, you know, this has popped up too many times for me not to look into this and get educated. So I went, and my best friend went with me. And we were listening to patients telling their stories and the clinicians talking about the disease. And at the break, I turned to her and I said, these are my people because Mm. their stories matched up with mine. So Mm. I went up to one of the neurologists that's an expert in NMO at the break. And I said to him, you know, can I get a consult with you? Because I walk like a duck. I quack like a duck. I just don't test like a duck. And he said, sure, just get your doctor to write the referral. So while I was waiting for that to go through, My test that they had run for NMO again came back negative, and at at that point
2: had the had the specificity for for that test improved since you had had it the first time? Was it was it returning fewer false negatives? It hadn't
1: got better, but they had revised the diagnostic criteria, so you didn't need a positive test if you met all these other criteria. So he said to me, well, I'm really sorry, but you're just going to have to accept that you have MS. And I thought to myself, yeah, the heck I will, because tomorrow I have a consult. I went out to UBC. I spent four hours there. They went through all the, the neuro tests that they do where, you know, you're doing all these touch your finger, touch your nose tests. Um, they looked at all of my MRIs and um asked me like a ton of questions. And at the end, they said, yep, you've definitely got NMO. I met all the other criteria. So I was re-diagnosed. So I'm a zero negative, um, I test negative um, NMO patient. And there's quite a lot of us that are. (sighs) So what's interesting is, you know, over time, I almost feel like I think I'm something even rarer. (laughs) because I still don't quite fit, but it's the, it's the treatment that I'm doing is working for me now. Um, And, you know, I, I mostly fit into this, but I think they're going to find there's a a disease called um, MOG, which is short for myelin oligodendrocyte lycoprotein spectrum disorder. And that is a disease that those patients were also lumped in with NMO for a long time. And about three years ago, they developed a test for this MOG antibody that people have. And they test for that now. And those people are now sort of being sifted out into their own disease category. I was tested for that because, of course, I don't fit perfectly into the NMO mold. Um, and so I tested negative again for that. So, you know, I think eventually science will catch up and it's quite possible mm-hmm. that I might even, you know, find right. out there's something even rarer or, you know, with it being a spectrum disorder, because they call it that because there's different, you know, Variations, sort of what the disease yeah. looks yeah. like within that continuum. So
2: that they, you've been through yeah. like quite a, um, I mean, Jesus, like quite, quite like a vast, um, uh, journey to like get to where you are now with like a, you know, a a solid diagnosis. Um, yeah. and I, one of the things that I'm really curious to talk to you about is like, um, you know, patient advocacy can look, uh, so many different ways for so many different people. And, and um, I'm wondering like after after this entire journey of finally ending up with like a diagnosis of where, what you had, um, what was the process of like deciding to to dedicate a, a large chunk of your life to being a patient advocate? Like what was was the process of of going through the system and 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 sort of being um, you know, find, like like being challenged to actually come down to a diagnosis was like was that one of the 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 key factors in in deciding to become a patient advocate or like what 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 inspired you to do the work that you're doing now?
1: Well, I think like a lot of chronic disease patients, whether they're rare or not, it you know it, we almost become accidental advocates, and I say that because you know none of us said to ourselves, "When I grow up, I want to be an advocate," right? Stuff mm. happens to you, and you see this the you know sort of the condition of the medical system, but also your own experiences that kind of drive the decision to speak up and to be present um, but also because when you're a rare disease patient, you're largely invisible yeah. um, you know when I was in the process of being diagnosed with nMO, I didn't know anybody with this disease, and it just so happened that um Christine Ha, who was the winner of season three of the American MasterChef, um, is somebody that lives with neuromyelitis optica. That's why she's blind. She Mm. was the first Blind Chef winner um, and has gone on to be super successful. But um, I knew about her because she was on this show and she talked about why she was blind and when and I and I was a fan of the show before she was ever on it, and I was watching, and she's talking about this disease. I'm like, oh my god! So I emailed her and um, through social media, and I said, hey, I'm in the process of being diagnosed with NMO. Um, you know, I've tested multiple times, and so she was super helpful to me in terms of, you know, really open and available to answering my questions and. Um, you know, that's a big deal when you're rare, because it's really hard to find other people to connect with your community. Um, you know, yeah. and you have tons of questions when you're being diagnosed, because you don't know what that means for your life. Mm. Um, and here's somebody who's in the public eye and is being successful, despite the fact that she's, you know, living with some pretty severe consequences of this disease. And so, you know, that was everything for me. And, you know, the beautiful thing about my community is that because we're where we understand what that feels like and so you know anytime somebody approaches us through email or social media whatever it is um you know we always step up and and help because we know what it feels like to be scared and alone and not knowing you know, what does this mean for my life? So if we can sort of be the peer support person for that person in that moment, it can be super helpful. But also for people who, um, you know, it's their loved one living with it. I've had lots of people from around the world get in touch with me and they're like, my sister just got diagnosed. My child just was diagnosed, you know, Mm. that kind of thing. My Mm. mom, um, you know, so if if i can be that for somebody else it's sort of my way of paying it forward yeah. um also like my first experience was being asked to come and speak at the um bc association of neuroscience nurses at their conference and they didn't know what this was mm. and they're neuroscience nurses mm. <laughs> so you know it that was my first experience and um I just realized how powerful our stories are at that point. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm a storyteller. And so I really wanted to be able to use my powers to help other patients that nobody should be 30 years trying to get a diagnosis with this disease.
0: favorite one-hit wonder
2: or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because
1: it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey
2: and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it
1: each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's
2: a
0: it's a really interesting part of it, like hearing you talk about because um, like a l- large part of your journey has been getting diagnosed and like uh, I was thinking of this this element of like treating diseases where. It, like the emotional toll that a disease can take on you part of the treatment can be being part of a community of people that have similar stories and can help you you know emotionally navigate um what it's like to experience that but coming back to like the actual treatment itself um isn't it wasn't it sort of obvious based on your story like I'm guessing it was sort of obvious that you didn't have MS based on your body's response to the MS treatments, which in that case would, you know, would probably make me think as a layperson that you didn't have MS and it was something else. So what, like, isn't that an obvious sign that this is NMO or something more like NMO and not MS?
1: Yeah, it's hard to say how, you know, what people were thinking at that time in the medical community, because You know, there's that saying, when you hear hoofbeats, you look for horses, you're not looking for zebras, who would be people with MS, and you're definitely not looking for unicorns, which are people with NMO. Um, So yeah, and the treatments are vastly different in the sense that MS treatments are immunomodulators and Mm. NMO treatments are immunosuppressants. So they're a different class of drug that and the mechanisms are different and so you know it it wasn't properly suppressing my immune system in the way that it needed to because it was just modulating it Mm -hmm. and it didn't do anything for me and that's why having the right diagnosis was so important because as you keep having attack like with ms when you have attacks it's like you might have an attack but MS is a cumulative, um, disease in terms of it creates disability as you age. And as long as the longer you have it, the more disability you'll, you'll develop. It's progressive. Mm
2: -hmm. Whereas
1: with NMO, the damage that you have is a direct result of the attacks. So the key is to prevent them in the first place to, Mm -hmm. in order to prevent, you know, disability. So if you're not targeting the right, um, part of the immune system for the right disease like me you end up with permanent damage it's irreversible like and it's devastating um so what happened to me while I was waiting to be diagnosed well misdiagnosed as the case may be um I lost all the feeling in my arms and hands because I had a spinal cord attack that damaged my c-spine and that was permanent and I'm an artist. So
2: Hmm.
1: (laughs) I was working with my hands and I had a very lucrative freelance art career and, um, you know, had to give that up. And I've never recovered the feeling in my hands and arms. So everything that I do is like doing it with oven mitts on. So, you know, the dexterity is really difficult. And, you know, simple things like if I hold a mug of coffee in my hand, if I'm not looking at my hand, I don't even know it's there. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I'm walking along and somebody's talking to me and I get distracted and I'm holding a cup, cup of coffee and it'll be, I'll be holding it sideways and the coffee's pouring out of it. And I don't even know. So, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. You're, you know, your brain's not attached anymore because you can't feel it. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, it, and that's devastating. So mm-hmm. You know, knowing what disease you have is a big deal with NMO. So,
2: and for for better or for worse, well, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. And in this case, for worse, in the medical in the medical world, doctors, physicians are looking for are looking at first for the most common the most common reason why these things are occurring.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah.
2: when, and then when you when you have these two things that have you know, crossover in terms of like symptoms and stuff, and you've got one that's rare and one that's super common. Um, I, I believe I believe MS is like a, a MS is is would be considered a very common disease, right? Is that correct? I'd say.
1: Yeah, if you're looking at it in terms of numbers, there's about two hundred and fifty thousand people in Canada who have MS. Hello. Oh, wow. Whereas there's only two thousand with NMO. So in BC, there's only 200 of us. It's, it's like, I think they, they said at one point it was like one and a quarter, one or no, four and a quarter million people have Mm, NMO.
0: Do you think there's more people with NMO out there that are just misdiagnosed with MS right now, then like similar to yours? Absolutely. I think
1: there's people living with a wrong diagnosis, whether that was because there was a lack of awareness or because, um, you know, neurologists didn't understand that the test could be giving false negatives. Mm. Um, and there's probably a lot of people too that have MOG antibody disease, um, uh, you know, that are that are also probably living under MS misdiagnosis as well. Good. And some of them are also still thought of as NMO, but I think the testing around MOG is, is getting better too. And I think, you know, over time, In the last 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of science moving forward. Um, There's been a lot of papers published because this disease is over 100 years old. And for the first 110 years, I would say that there was very little movement in what we knew about the disease and how it was treated. I mean, up until about six years ago, there were no specific drugs for this disease, There were three off-label use drugs, all of which are used for immunosuppression um, in patients who have had uh, kidney transplants. So we're using the same... um, Anti rejection medication to suppress the immune system for NMO to suppress our immune system, and those drugs are not particularly good. In my experience, I cycled through all of them and was still having attacks. So my immune system is pretty resistant. Ooh. I always say it's like poking the sleeping bear. It you know don't tick it off. So I, fortunately, I, I... there's been three drugs now developed for our disease Ooh. and. Um, since 2019 have been on the market in Canada. So
2: hmm.
1: um, we're now able to have better treatments and I'm on the best, well, in my opinion, the best of them. And so my, you know, I've been in remission for the first time in my entire life for the oh, last wow. uh, two years. Yeah. Amazing. So that's a huge, big deal for me. Yeah. Um,
2: I, I would love to uh, you know, at the very beginning of the podcast, I had mentioned how uh, you're, you're a smart person without uh, without having a DR in, in front of your name. Um, and, uh, the reason I said that is because you, um, without being a doctor, without having a PhD, uh, you've been published in medical journals, uh, more than once. And, uh, and I'd love to kind of talk about your writing. Um, how does, how does a patient find themselves writing something that gets published in a medical journal? Um, and, and what were the, what were the articles that you had written that ended up getting published?
1: So um, yeah, that that was uh really exciting for me. That's all happened in the last two years. Um so the Journal of Medical Imaging and Radiation Science, I have to give a shout out to them because what they're doing, in my opinion, is groundbreaking. Um they had a call for, for narratives um back in early 20, 2020, um, asking for patients to talk about. Patients or even even people in radiology uh, to talk about experiences with medical imaging. And Sue was going to be the guest um, editor for that particular issue and had uh, put it up on her social media that this call was out. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, <laughs> as an NMO patient, I've had so much experience with medical imaging. I've had ridiculous amount of MRIs, um, you know, ultrasounds, all of that kind of stuff. And so I thought, surely I have a story to tell. Um, And so I wrote a paper um, called The Tale of Two MRIs. And it's about um, some MRI experiences that I had my initial experience with my first ever MRI and how stressful that was, um, because I was basically shoved into a machine. And I think, you know, in my mind, I never heard from the person who was uh, doing the imaging, and I you know, I was thinking, well, have they gone off for dinner and just left me in the machine? Um, I'm also somewhat claustrophobic, and um, when you have NMO, you have to pretty much have a head to tail bone MRI. so your head is in what I call the cage, which is the headgear that they use to hold your head and neck in a stable position to get good imaging. Um, It feels very trap-like and, you know, being strapped into that and shoved into a small space, not the best experience for me. Um, And how that experience covered, colored every interaction that I had having future MRIs um, because it wasn't positive. And then in contrast, had an MRI that I had volunteered for a study for NMO. And I volunteered because, of course, if you're a rare disease patient and they're studying your disease, there's a limited amount of people that they can use as study subjects. And so I knew it was important to furthering what we knew about NMO. And even though I hate having MRIs, I thought I'm going to volunteer and help the science move forward. And so that MRI was life-changing for me because the person who was doing it um, was so fantastic, talked to me through the entire thing and kept encouraging me and telling me I was doing a good job and how long each sequence was so that I, you know, I am not able to do three and a half hours in a machine, but what I can do is 10 minutes and 10 minutes and five minutes and three minutes and 10 minutes till it adds up to an hour, three and a half hours. So, hmm. you know, that person really changed my experience. And so I wrote this paper about this experience um, and it actually went on to become um, adopted as best practices in Canada, Finland, and Ireland.
0: Wow. Um, That's yeah. Wild. And yeah.
1: it's been um, adopted into teaching syllabus for MRI as well. So, Um, that's really exciting when something that I've written as a patient has been able to change policy and how people learn about MRI and and how to help patients get through it.
0: What do do Um, you think, like, what is it that makes, because like, I feel like there's so many different like feedback mechanisms, um, that hospitals use to like try to learn about the processes that they have and how to, you know, optimize or make them better, um, yeah, like like what those little it? slips that you write on, put it in the box <laughs> right, and hope sure. they read it. But suggestion even like boxes, I mean Brian. even suggestion boxes, but like like even like patient feedback where a patient just said like what you said, like a patient saying that to a doctor, like, you know, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, it doesn't well, ninety-nine million times out of yeah. ninety-nine a hundred million times, like that's not gonna change the processes or become best practices. Because it doesn't like, end up in a medical journal. Like, so, you know? but but what is like how Because it would be really easy for somebody to read that in a medical journal and go, that's great. You know, that's great feedback. But like, how does that go from being an article in a medical journal to actually becoming the best? Well,
1: paper wasn't just about my experience. I talked about what made the difference for me and how, um, you know, people who are practicing radiologists, what they could tangibly do to make their practice better. Because when you think about it, when a patient is freaked out and they're having medical imaging, either they're gonna cancel their appointment, which creates a backlog and a headache because now you have to rebook that person or they panic in the machine. So you're having to keep stopping to either pull them out and reassure them or stopping altogether. So it behooves the people that are doing the imaging to understand what will make a difference for patients in a tangible way, because if they, if they do these things, it makes their job easier and it makes the patient more cooperative, which, you know, the ultimate goal is you need to get those images because you're trying to help somebody with something serious that's going on with their health Mm -hmm. or to rule something serious out. So, you know, I didn't just say, here's my, crappy experience and here's my good experience but I said here are the steps that you can take to help patients through this and I think you know a lot of times we complain about things but we're not offering solutions so Mm -hmm. I think that that was part of it but it was also you know the Journal of Medical Imaging and Radiation Science was open to having the patient's talk about these things because a lot of times, you know, the medical system doesn't want to hear feedback. And even if they do, they're not always sure what to do with it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that it was really helpful to give them some tangible ideas about what they could do. My second paper was a paper called recognizing and mitigating the potential for emergency, diabetic emergency in MRI that was based off of um an a really scary mri experience that i had um about a year ago i because of covid and the backlog of um you know tests that were going on i ended up having to have MRIs every friday for the month of july last
0: whoa. year whoa you're an uh, mri
1: to, like, expert catch up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was yeah. Just, And that's a lot for me for somebody who hates MRI Um, in the meantime uh, just to give you a little background I was diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic in the fall of 2019 and I'm on an insulin pump and I have a continuous glucose monitor and so when I go for these tests because you can't have anything metal in in the MRI machine I had to take these off and um, the first time I did, by the time I got out of the MRI, um I I was a little bit shaky. And um then so the next time I went, um I changed how I like how soon I was taking off my equipment and my insulin and everything. And I ate candy before I went in to try and boost my blood sugar because what was happening was my blood sugar was going really low. And that's dangerous um, when you're diabetic. I'm a type one. And so I have to watch that. And that's part of the reason why I have a glucose monitor and an insulin pump is because if my blood sugar gets too low, which it tends towards, I don't usually get high. I get low. um, An alarm goes off to let me know that I need to either eat candy or drink juice or whatever to try and boost my, my blood sugar up to a level. Because what happens is I get sweaty, I get shaky, uh, you can get confusion, Um, I felt super nauseous, um, and I was afraid I was either going to faint or go unconscious. And so um, when I went back for another one, I was in the machine and I had those feelings come over me and I recognized that I was going low. And I pushed the button, you know, they give you that little emergency button and I pushed it and they came on the speaker and the tech said, um, you know, what's, what's the matter. And I said, um, I need out. I, I'm, my blood sugar is crashing and I need juice. And she said, oh, the hospital doesn't offer that. And I was like, Um, no, I have juice with me, but I need out now. Like I need to treat myself. And she's like, oh, just four more minutes. We're almost done the imaging. Um, and I was like, no, I, I need out. And she was like, no, no, we just, if we have four more minutes, we'll be done. And then your, your neurologist will have, you know, good imaging. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I need out. And fortunately, because she was not hearing me, um, somebody came into the room one of her coworkers and overheard what i was saying and he said she's done let her out now and even mm. you know once they got all the the headgear undone so that i could sit up i was shaking and it took me a few minutes to get my wits about me before i could get off the table and get my juice so that i could treat myself and that's terrifying i could have vomited mm. while pinned down on my back and choked to death, I could have slipped into a coma. So I wanted, I was like, wow, this is really scary. And so um, I was talking to the editor of of the journal um, one day, and I mentioned that this had happened. And uh, she said, you know, that would be a really good paper. And she said, what would be interesting is if you write it from your perspective of what happened, And we get a radiologist to write, you know, from her perspective, what should have happened. And I was like, okay, that's great. So they paired me up with somebody who is a radiologist in Australia. And we wrote this paper together, and um, it's now come out uh, in the journal. So that's really exciting. Um, Mm.
0: That's really awesome. And
1: that that paper, I found out from, from the editor. Um, has already changed policy in Canada. Um, Somebody took my paper in in a hospital in Toronto and used it to change the policy around the the 12-hour fasting that happens when you have an MRI with contrast um, because she wanted to say, like, this this policy of this massive fasting needs to go. And Mm. she used my paper to strengthen her argument so, you know, I'm super proud when I can hear that I'm making a change. And as an advocate and a patient, that on the hard days of advocacy is what keeps me going.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really because
1: it's making a difference in this country and in other countries. Like that to me blows my mind. I call these the little papers that could.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. The the um the thing that I think is so amazing about Uh, that story, especially for, for people who are listening, who consider themselves to be patient advocates too, is that, and I I like that you highlighted this, that like, you know, complaining about the process without offering any sort of um, ways to improve it. It isn't helpful, you know, like it's good to highlight where the shortfalls are, but if you're not offering suggestions to fix those, then it's going to be really hard for the people in power to action those stories. And so by offering, you know, advice or, or um, points on how these things can change, that's, that's, what's really going to make a difference. And so I really appreciate that. And
1: that, that paper on, on diabetic emergencies, you know, I talked about how do you recognize it? Like what, what kind of symptoms the patient might be displaying or, Reporting to you as it's happening and what you can do, which is something as simple as having, you know, and you know, you get those those three packs of juice boxes for 99 cents, it doesn't cost you, it costs you a buck to save somebody's life, you have those sitting in your cupboard. And so again, I talked about that experience, and then contrasted it with an experience I had where I had a mammogram a few months before that, that incident happened um, where I got to the end of it and I had those same symptoms. My blood sugar was crashing and I felt like I was going to faint. And I said to the woman who was doing my mammogram, I think I'm going to faint. My blood sugar is, is on the downswing. And she, she stopped what she was doing like helped me to a chair, sat me down and ran and got a juice box out of her cupboard. I didn't even have to get my own juice out of the locker. She had Mm -hmm. it right there and she did everything right. And so, you know, I talk about that so that people can see like this is what happens when you're not aware and you don't handle it really well versus if you're prepared and you understand what you're looking for you can save somebody's life, but also, you know, that's something that you need to know for your job because there's lots of diabetics out there and you Mm. don't necessarily even have to be a type one to have that issue with your sugar. Mm -hmm. And it's super scary, you know, and, and there may be times where I'm not able to articulate what I need because that can happen. You get mental confusion when your sugar is crashing. So you know, that kind of information is is an invaluable tool for anybody who practices medical imaging. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and that was my goal was, you know, this happened to me, I don't want to see it happen to other patients. And I should say too, that the radiologist, her name's Belinda, um, who lives in Australia, who wrote the second paper with me. Shout out her Belinda. son is a type one. And so when she heard my experience, she was horrified. Mm. Because in her mind, she's thinking, oh, gosh, this could happen to my son. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. so she was she wanted she wanted to help write this paper because she understood how serious this could yeah. be. Speaking- so, you know it it's that kind of stuff. It's your experiences as a patient that push you into these roles of advocating for your community. Right.
2: Mm. Speaking of advocacy, um, I know that you also host a podcast. Um, very fun. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about NMOSD your way?
1: Yeah. So, um, because I'm a rare patient, I was partnered with a pharmaceutical company named Alexian, uh, who um, is worldwide. Um, back in 2019, because they wanted to learn about NMO, because at that time, um, you know, it, they they were their The pharmaceutical industry was just getting into looking at developing drugs for NMO. Um, And so I became a partner with them and they approached me um, last summer to see if I would be interested in hosting a podcast about NMO. And I jumped at it because um, there were a number of reasons. The first being that, um, you know, because I've been a crisis line worker, I, I listen to my community in a way that maybe other people might not. Um, and I, I kept hearing all these information gaps that people were falling into. And I wanted to help build resource. I love information and referral. If I can connect people to things that will help them, I, it just it makes their lives easier, but I also feel like health literacy is super, super important for anybody living with any kind of uh, chronic illness or disease. You know, a lot of times, Our doctors see us for like five minutes and they don't, you know, their snapshot of us is very small. Um, And so, you know, we need to become experts in our disease and especially if you're rare. And so I, I felt like this was an opportunity to build sort of tools and resources for my community by doing these podcasts. Um, but also, you know, I've done radio before, and I really love the experience of sitting in the booth. I, there's something about it. And so, you know, this to me was like it was just such an easy yes. And mm. so um that podcast has eight episodes for the first season. Uh, we talk about all kinds of things with clinicians and researchers and also fellow patients. Um, we've covered things like, you know, being newly diagnosed um, relationships. And I, we had two episodes on that. We had one where we talked to a patient and her partner who is her caregiver, as well as um, somebody who works uh, Kat Anderson, who is a partner um, with reach trauma. And so she does some counseling around, you know, living with chronic illness and that type of thing on the effects Of uh, rare disease and chronic illness on relationships. Um, We talked to um, a a neurologist about getting the most out of your appointments uh, when you see your neurologist. We had um, a physiatrist, Dr. Rajiv Rebai, come on and talk about uh, pain in NMO because it's different from how people, you know, healthy people experience pain by the way that our body is damaged. Um, it's really hard to dial back NMO pain. And, uh, you know, and it was about talking to your, your clinicians about your pain in an effective way to get help. Um, I think pain is something that affects, you know, chronic illness patients widely. It's not just an NMO thing. And I think it's one of the things that has the biggest impact on quality of life, but it's also one of the least talked about things. Um, and definitely, I feel very undertreated in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and then I talked about my own advocacy as a way of sort of introducing myself to members of the community that may not know me and wondering why am I doing this podcast? So, you know, it's and it's been really wonderful. It's, you know, it's been picked up on Spotify and Google Podcast and audi- um, Audiobook, no, Audible. I always want to say audiobooks. I don't know why, <laughs> but, yeah, and so it's become this this wonderful tool to giving information to my community to help strengthen their health literacy. and um, it's been really wonderful because Alexian just basically said, like, what ideas do you have? what kind of episodes? And I proposed what I wanted to talk about, who I wanted to have on. I, I was able to write all of the content. Um, and they they hooked me up with a wonderful uh, podcasting recording company that does health podcasts and um, you know I have a PR firm that's that's supporting me in, in you know getting getting it out there and um, yeah they've been amazing allies for our community. I cannot say enough good about Alexian. Mm. The people are lovely and kind and so patient centered, like, you know, there's a lot of lip service given to that term, you know, and, and what does that really mean? But they've, they've not only talked the talk, they walked the walk Mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm so deeply lucky Mm -hmm. to be partnered with them. Well, it's amazing.
2: We, uh, we, we feel sincerely lucky, lucky to have uh, had an opportunity to sit down and chat with you about uh, your experience um, as being, a you know, a very vital patient advocate, uh, uh, with a very rare disease and one that, you know, we, uh, this is the first time we we've ever, uh, come across, um, (laughs) uh, NMOSD. So thank you for taking time out of your schedule to, uh, give us a bit of insight into the work that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: It's been great talking with you. I really appreciate you having me on and, you know, huge fan of your show.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Thanks. Thank you.
2: That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy and this is SipWorld.